We're in Genesis chapter 39. In this, this last section of the book of Genesis, a section that focuses in on the last of the patriarchs, Joseph, we're finally being brought back into the life of Joseph, finally back to him being in Egypt. And our verses today begin by taking Joseph down, with verse 1 telling us, now Joseph was brought down to Egypt. This is the second time that we are told that Joseph was brought down. The first was back in chapter 37 when we were told that he was cast down into a pit by his brother. And this is one of the tools that the Lord uses and gives to us in reading his word to focus our attention, to tell us the meaning of what he wants us to know and what he's saying. He will often use repetition of words, repeated words or phrases to catch our attention to focus our minds. And he's doing this now concerning Joseph. Joseph had been stripped of his rank and his privilege by his brothers. He had been sold to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. He had been taken down by force to Egypt, where he had been resold to a man named Potiphar. Here are verses 1 through 6 of chapter 39. Now Joseph was brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian official of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. And Yahweh was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that Yahweh was with him, and how Yahweh caused all that he did to succeed in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight. And attended on him, and he appointed him overseer over his house, and all that he owned he gave into his hand. Now it happened that from the time he appointed him overseer in his house, and over all that he owned, Yahweh blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the blessing of Yahweh was upon all that he owned, in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's hand, and with him, there he did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. Now, as with all chapters and all accounts within the Bible, we should be asking a fundamental question of ourselves. Why? Why, Lord, are you telling us this? What, what are we supposed to make of this account? What is it that you would have us learn from it? For many people, the answer in this case is easy. They will use this account as an example of how we should live. They will use Joseph as an example for us to emulate, a man who the Bible never records of ever sinning, a man who seems to possess extraordinary uh, moral fortitude, a man that we are then told that we should try to be like. And we're very often we are told that we are given this account in order that we can then learn how to live. But if you're being honest, you look at this story and you're being honest, if you are actually a thinking person, one who uses logic and reason in your life, the benefits of living like Joseph did, they're not worth it. 
Why in the world should we be faithful to our bosses? To not live for ourselves. If the reward that we get in being faithful is hardship and pain, this makes no sense. But just as there was a reiteration of the events in the life of Joseph, that his life was hard, that he was brought down, there's another phrase that is reiterated in this chapter, a phrase that not only explains why his life was what it was, but also why he lived the way that he did. And in truth, even tells us how he was able to live the way that he did. That he was brought down is told to us three times. But there's another truth concerning Joseph that is reiterated to us four times. Yahweh was with him. What God desires you to glean from this chapter, this last section of the book of Genesis, is that he is a faithful God that answers prayers. Joseph was brought down. He was broken Stripped of everything that he had ever known, everything that he had ever loved. He had been made a slave, treated as a slave. And this all happened because of that other thing that is repeated in these verses. Because Yahweh was with him. Him being brought down happened because of the truth told of to us concerning this man Joseph in Isaiah 43, verses 4 through 7, there God tells us about Joseph and about us. Since you are precious in my eyes, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. Is this not the same thing that we are told four times in this chapter concerning Joseph? He says, I will bring your seed from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons and daughters from afar, from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. And this is the same truth that is told to us once again in the New Covenant. Nothing changed from the old to the new. Nothing changed in how God loves his people, his chosen elect people. What we are reading about in our chapter today happened because of that truth that is told to us in Romans 8. Those verses that we know so well, that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Because those whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and those who he predestined he also called and those he called he also justified and those he justified he also glorified but what we don't realize concerning those roman verses is how that's all practically worked out and you're thinking, what do you mean we don't know how that's practically worked out? Of course we know how that's all practically worked out. We're reformed. We have our theology correct. We know how the Lord saves people. And I'm betting this is probably true for most of us. But we still don't understand what this looks like practically. 
what it looks like in real life. But fear not. That, that is actually told to us in Romans 8 as well. Verses 24 through 27, where God tells us, For in hope we were saved. And this is the election, the predestination, the justification and glorification that is spoken of in verse 29. But he goes on, But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we don't see, with perseverance we eagerly wait for it. And in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. In the same way, which is to say, just as we cannot know what we hope in since we don't actually see it, we can't truly know how to pray. We don't really understand that new heart that has been given to us. Verse 27, And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is salvation. And this is all miraculous. Truly it is. God does a miracle in our life because we are predestined, elected to be of him. And at that specific moment in time that he chooses, he regenerates our heart. He gives us a heart that is finally able to see the reality of realities, that we are sinners, that we are treasonous rebels who have committed, committed blasphemous, eternal treason against an eternal Holy God, and for this reason we are under his eternal wrath. And he is going to give us not only what we deserve, but what our heart, our sin-filled heart, truly desires. An eternity away from his goodness. But God, oh dear saints, but God, in his goodness, he gives us eyes to see, ears to hear. And we see and we hear and we confess with our mouth and we believe in our heart. We are saved as we proclaim the amazing grace of God. And then we pray. Because of the heart that God has given us, because we are in him, because he is in us, we pray. And then the truth of Romans 8 is told to us there. The truth of that new life of Christ is given to us there in verses 24 through 27. We don't know how to pray. Our new hearts, they long for truth, for true truth, for goodness. But our old heart is deceitfully wicked and not to be trusted. And this is where the Spirit of God living inside of us gives us these utterances deeper and more glorious than we are ever capable of thinking or perceiving outside of him. And we pray. We ask God to do the impossible, the improbable. Lord, use me. Lord, teach me patience. Change me. Make me humble. Grow me to be more conformed into the image of your glorious Son. Lord, 
Show me your glory. And these prayers, these are all spirit-infused, spirit-induced, and spirit-empowered prayers. And all this happens because of the love of God for us. Because he sees us as beautiful. Because we are precious in his sight. And because he loves us. And then God answers those prayers of our new heart. The heart that we have been given for him, by him, and to him. And the first six verses of our chapter today, they are a demonstration of how God answers those spirit-filled, spirit-infused, spirit-driven prayers of our new heart. God breaks us. He reveals to us those blind spots in our deceitful heart. He reveals to us our idolatry, reveals that false God that we have inside of our heart that is us. And he takes us down to the end of ourself. And he does this because he loves us. And he knows what is best for us. Romans 8.29 it wasn't by accident or coincidence that Joseph was his father's favorite. That he had been given power and privilege by his father. And then given dreams by God. God didn't see these things in the life of Joseph and think to himself, Hey, I can use these. This all happened in order to bring him down. To have him fear for his life as he heard his brothers plotting the assassination of him. Wondering in fear as he's drug up out of that pit and then sold as a slave. Shackled hand and foot. Sold as an animal. No better than a cow or a goat that's being led to the market. God did this. He purposefully did this to bring Joseph down to Egypt, to a foreign land where there is no hope of ever escaping or ever being bought out of his slavery. God did this. All for Joseph's good and for the glory of God. And we know that this is the case because of those repeated instances of being told Yahweh was with him. And this chapter, this chapter will be the last time in this book that the name of God, Yahweh, will be used in the book of Genesis. And again, this is given to us in this matter for a reason, because God wants us to know that he was intimately, passionately involved in the life of Joseph. And Joseph isn't alone in this kind of treatment. This is how God treats all the children that he loves. We know this because of Zechariah 13, 8 and 9, where we're told it will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, test them as gold is tested, and they will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say they are my people, and they will say, 
The Lord is my God. This is the same thing that, that Daniel, Prophet Daniel, told us in uh, Daniel chapter 11, verse 35, where we're told some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time. And again, Daniel chapter 12, verse 10, many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand. But those who have insight will understand. This is the same thing we're told in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 25. I will also turn my hand against you, and I will smelt away your dross as with lye, and will remove all your alloy. But how often, though, how very often when the events of our life begin to turn hard, when difficulty or adversary happens to us, or even that person who claims Christ as Lord, our first response is to give Satan way too much credit. We will say, you will hear them say, this is an attack of Satan. This is outside of the will of God. This is, whatever this is, this hard and difficult time, this is Satan. It's not God. And perhaps it is. It was in the life of Job. Satan did launch a full-on attack against that servant of God, Job. A multi-phase, multi-fraught attack that brought devastation and repeated reports of horror bad news to that servant of God, Job. But Job recognized something that we are meant to recognize as well. Job knew something about the God that had captivated his heart. He knew that all things work together for the good for those that are called according to the purpose of God. And how did Job react? Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. Yahweh gave, and Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. How? How did Job get to this point in his walk with the Lord? How did Job do this? Well, the answer to that is also found in the book of Job. Job chapter 23, verse 10. Job said, But he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. He knew something about God. It seemed that he knew, was absolutely resolute in the truth about God. And this is the same sentiment that David expressed in Psalm 66. He said, you have tried us, O God. You have refined us as silver is refined. You have brought us into the net. You laid an oppressive burden on our loins. You made men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you brought us out into a place of abundance. Verses 10 through 12. And it seemed that in the life of Joseph, that this is where Joseph was at, according to verse 6. He was at the mountaintop of God. He had been tried. He had been tested. He had been refined. And now the Lord was beginning to elevate his servant Joseph. 
But this is, God is not yet through with Joseph. He's not yet through answering the prayer of Joseph. Verses 7 through 16. Now it happened after these events that his master's wife set her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house that he has given all that he owns into my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a great evil and sin against God? So it happened that as she spoke to Joseph day after day, that he did not listen to her or lie beside her or be with her. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work and none of the other men of the household were there. And she seized him by his garment saying, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and he fled and he went outside. Now it happened that when she, when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand, and fled outside, that she called to the men of her household and spoke to them, saying, See, he has brought in a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I screamed. Now it happened that when he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. And she placed his garment beside her until her master came, his master came home. Let's be real with each other. Because I know that I've never really considered this account realistically. In reading it, I just kind of gloss over it. I, I know that I have personally, I've glamorized this account. I, I've, I've sanitized it. I've never really thought about that temptation that Joseph was dealing with as being real. But the reality is, Joseph was a young man, probably 20 years old, who is interested in women. And we know this because he gets married and has children later. And here we're told that he is being constantly set upon by this woman, who we know nothing about except that she is the wife of a very prominent man. And again, this all happened at the hand of God. And this was a real temptation one of us that none of us, I would say none of us would ever have to, have to face. Having a person day in, day out, throw themselves at us. With the very thing that is truthfully at the core of our primal being. Most of us don't understand this temptation. But for most, for most of us, for all of us, when we are tempted to sin lustfully, that temptation, that temptress, that beckons us in the electronic realm. Not come lie with me, come click on me. No one will know. What harm is it going to do? No one's going to be harmed. And to our shame... Most of us, statistically speaking, we fail and we consistently go and lie with Potiphar's wife. Seven out of ten professing Christians 
professing Christians, seven out of ten succumb to Potiphar's wife on a regular basis. But Joseph succeeded. He succeeded in resisting this temptation. And then he was rewarded for it. Verses 17 through 20. And then she spoke to him, Potiphar, with these words saying, The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came into me to laugh at me. And I raised my voice and screamed, and he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Now it happened that when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, This is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. So Joseph's master took and put him in the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the jail. How is this fair? How how is this even right? I mean, Joseph was doing everything right. He's working as if unto the Lord. He's eating right, staying in shape. He's upright and honest in all of his dealings with his master. He's keeping his promise ring on, keeping himself pure. If this... If these are the results of remaining pure, if, the, if, if these are the results of working as if unto the Lord, where are the benefits of it? If this is how God rewards good behavior, forget about it. Most of us would never outright say those things with our mouths. But our actions our actions at work, our actions within this body, how we actually love and honor the Lord, they, our actions, prove that this is actually how we think. We have yet to learn what Joseph had been taught. We think that the value of obedience to the Lord is found in the rewards that we get in this world. And if this were not so, If this were not so, dear saints, then our giving would not be an issue to us. If God actually rewarded people here in this realm realm, with lots of stuff, with an easy life, with fancy things, if these were the reward that were given for the obedience to God, that our lives would look much different than they would. We don't see, we don't see much value in obedience and submission to God, which is proven by our actions. And I'm going to just use one action in our life to demonstrate this reality. Because if we actually thought that there was value in obeying the Lord, if then giving to this body, living for this body, living a a life of thankfulness and joyfully, extravagantly giving back would not be an issue. If we valued the reward for this obedience to the word of God in giving, our giving would look much different than it does. And this is the same for every one of the commands of God given to us. And unfortunately, tragically, and realistically, 
if we were actually rewarded here in this realm for obedience to God, if we got more better stuff here in this realm, we would be obedient. And the problem for us is that we don't value that which has been given to us, that which is truly valuable. We don't understand ROI, which is return on investment. You can have a degree in economics. You may be able to expound on for a long amount of time the best way to leverage your assets, the best hedge funds to invest in, the best way to ensure that you can live your best life now and have your best life at retirement. But because of the verses in Romans 8 concerning our hearts being made alive to the Lord, because they are true, we, like Joseph, we are meant to understand real ROI, return on investment. We are supposed to know what is truly valuable in this life. Saints, the Lord desires us to know this truth, to know what is truly valuable valuable. And it isn't the things of this world. There are, he wants us to know that there is great return on investment in him. And that the things of this world are not those rewards. They are not the rewards that Joseph received for passing that test of his master's wife. Verses 21 through 23 are. But Yahweh was with Joseph and extended loving kindness on him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. So the chief jailer gave into the hand of Joseph all the prisoners who were in the jail so that Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's hand because Yahweh was with him. And whatever he did, Yahweh made to succeed. And here God has answered for us the why of the life and the events of Joseph. The why of him being brought down so very far because of the favor and the love of God who had elected him. And the next question that we should be asking of ourselves is this. How? How was Joseph able to overcome? How was he able to stand in the day of adversity? How was Job able to do this? And here, our theology it's going to kick in, and it's going to prompt us to answer that question. I, I, I know this one. It's the Lord. That's how he did it. But that's not an answer. That's not a real answer. That's a non-answer. That answer, while being theologically correct, is also personally incorrect. And I'm going to use a single verse as a catalyst to reveal the how of Joseph being able to overcome the temptation of Potiphar's wife. The answer, how he was able to remain steadfast in his confidence of the Lord, even when he heard of his imminent death. Say, saw that his brothers were going to sell him for money, lived through the shackles and then the auction block, and then be cast down into prison and seemingly forgotten 
all because of an evil woman. And I'm not making assumptions concerning Joseph here. He told that immoral woman the single reason that he would not succumb to her advances. And it wasn't because she was ugly or fat or old or that he didn't desire her. She very provocatively stood there before him. We have no idea what she was wearing, but I guarantee it probably wasn't much. As she provocatively stood there before him, offering him the thing that his flesh desired, his answer to her reveals how and where he obtained the moral fortitude that he had. Again, verse 9. He said, There is no one greater in the house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against Potiphar? No. God. My sinning with you is a sin against God. This man had given himself over to something much more captivating than anything here on earth. Much more captivating than that woman. Any pleasure, any freedom, any ease of life. We have to ask ourselves, what have we given ourselves over to? And now that verse that I'm going to use to explain the how that he did this. And just importantly, to demonstrate why he did this. And that verse is Psalm 119, verse 140. Your word is exceedingly refined. Therefore, your slave loves it. And you're thinking, come on, David. Joseph didn't have the word. Moses hadn't even been born yet. But God spoke to Joseph. We know this because he, of the dreams that he had, those dreams that he faithfully relayed to his family both times. And you're thinking, well, when God gives me a dream, I'll obey too. Well, God has given us a dream. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. God having spoken long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days spoke to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, from whom he also made the worlds, who is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, upholds all things by the word of his power, who having accomplished cleansing for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they." What we have been given is truly a dream. But why, though, you're thinking, why would this dream be the how and why of the life of Joseph? I mean, how does that verse 140 of Psalm 119, how does that explain that? Because of the context of that verse. Here are the verses that surround and encapsulate one, verse 140 of Psalm 119. Righteous are you, O Yahweh, and upright are your judgments. In righteousness you have commanded your testimonies and exceeding faithfulness. My zeal has consumed me because my adversaries have forgotten your words. Your word is exceedingly refined. Therefore, your slave loves it. 
I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. Trouble and anguish have found me, yet your commandments are my delight. Righteousness are your testimonies forever. Give me understanding that I may live. And saints, do you hear in these verses the Spirit of God working in the life of that saint and giving that saint the ability and then the desire to pray for that which will bring the greatest return on investment into his life? It's nothing here. It's God himself. This is why we're told in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 18, God gives us some advice. He says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. How was Joseph able to overcome the temptation in his life? Why would he live the way that he did? Well, because he understood Galatians 2.20 that I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life with which I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself up for me. Because the Son of God loved him, gave himself up for him, this is not only how, but also the why that Joseph was able to live the life that he did. He understood ROI, that he, already been, he had already been given the greatest of gifts. And for this reason, he acted. And this is where we, in our Reformed theology, where we so very often smugly live as disobedient children, willful, sinful, stubborn in our prideful thinking, I'm only doing that which God desires me to do. Oh, the way that I live, the way that I give, how much I'm pouring into this body, God knows. And he's okay with it. Otherwise, I would give more. I would pour into the body more. I would read the word more. And this is where we prove we don't see the greatest gift of all eternity has already been given to us. We are told in Hebrews 12 that those that are of God, those whose hearts have been made alive to Christ, that they will be disciplined by the Lord. Hebrews 12, 7. It's for discipline that you have to endure. And do you understand that discipline happens from inside and from the outside? You get that? God deals with you as with your sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? And then we're given a warning in verse 8. But if you are without discipline, inside and outside, on which all who have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And oh, how often we console ourselves into thinking, this doesn't mean that I need to be obedient to the word of God. I can live just like all those other people that call themselves Christians out there. Those that are carnal. 
Those that just get by, they seem to be doing okay. They, they seem to be doing okay with the, war, the, with the Lord, living lukewarm, disobedient lives. And I mean, at the end of the day, they're okay. Right? Are they? How do you know? Is that what the Word of God says? Do you remember that admonishment by God to buy gold refined from him that I read to you, Revelation chapter 3? Directly preceding that admonishment, God says to you and me, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, but because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spew you out of my mouth because you say, I am rich and become wealthy and need nothing. You don't know. And he's talking to Christians here. You don't know that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. And God doesn't say here, I know your heart. He's saying here, what he says is, I know by your deeds. And your deeds prove whether you are hot or cold. And it is then that he says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be manifested and I solve so that you can anoint your eyes so that you may see, verse 18. Since the life of Joseph, the account that we are given, this is given to us to show us what the love of God looks like, what it feels like, And what a man who has been captivated by the Lord looks like. Joseph understood where his greatest return on investment was at. He understood that obedience was not to get a gift. Obedience was because the greatest gift had already been given to him. And for this reason, he had disciplined himself for righteousness' sake. We are meant to look at his actions and understand that they are the willful choice of a man who has been captivated by the Lord, who knows his gold and knows it is more precious than anything this world can offer. We are meant to understand that just as his actions did not just affect him, that our actions do not just affect us. And this is the same reality that Peter told us in 1 Peter 1. There, speaking of the saints of old, men and women, just as Joseph, who understood that their life was not their own, he says this in verses 12 through 19, that it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been declared to you through those who proclaim the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And this is how amazing this gospel, this grace, this salvation is that we have. This, it is so amazing. The angels long to look into it, to understand it. Because they see those sinners that have been redeemed. They watch as they live holy because he is holy. Peter understood that the greatest gift had already been given to us. And that we are not to act to get something, but because we've already been given the greatest gift. 
and that our actions prove, prove whose we are. Verses 13 through 16, he tells us, Therefore, having girded your mind for action, being sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this, this is the greatest ROI. Yes, you have been saved. But do you not understand that as you live obedient lives to Christ, that he will be revealed to you more and more. And as obedient children, not being conformed to the former lusts which, with you, which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourself also in all your conduct, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And just in the life of Joseph, Peter is saying that we can act and that we are to act because of the greatest gift that has already been given to us, a gift that has the greatest return on investment. He is saying that we are meant to understand. The thing that we're meant to understand is that life with Christ is not a set of got-tos. And if you see your life with Christ as a set of got-tos, I have to tell you, be warned, you may not know the Lord. It's a set of get-tos. He gave us his word. We get to read it. He gave us his body. We get to be a part of it. He gave us gifts to serve the body with. And just like the, um, the warning that we were told earlier, Peter then gives us a warning, beginning in verse 17. He says this, And if you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself in fear during this time of your sojourn, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your futile conduct inherited from your forefathers, but with a precious blood as of the lamb, unblenished, spotless, the blood of Christ. Again, the life of Joseph was a life that proves whose he was. He was disciplined for righteousness' sake, and he lived quorum Deo, in the presence of the Lord, and because he had already been given the greatest of gifts, he acted in that. He understood that which Paul tells us in Philippians 2. When we're told, So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Knowing this, it is God who's at work in you both to give you the will and then even give you the work for his good pleasure. He has given you his salvation, your salvation. He has given us abundant life. And his salvation comes with commandments. And as we're told in those Philippian 2 verses, those commandments are his enablements. It's our great honor it's our great privilege that we get to work out our salvation. It's because we've already been given the greatest gift and reward that we must discipline ourselves. You must be obedient. And this is where we get lost concerning Joseph. Why we're confused by his life and how God treated him. 
the things happening into his life. Understanding that God loved him and was treating him as a son. And that he was disciplining his son. We may get that. But at the same time, Joseph, before, during, and even after that outward discipline from the Lord, he was disciplining himself. Why? Why would Joseph live in this manner? I mean, why would he be faithful in his dealings to a man who owned him? A man who was the only reason that he couldn't return to his father in that multicolored jacket. Why would he remain obedient to the Lord, deny his flesh, when there's no apparent reward for doing so? When it seemed that his reward for being obedient to the Lord and living a holy life was nothing but more pain, more suffering, more mockery. Because he saw Christ. He saw Christ at the greatest value in all eternity. He was living in the answered prayers that he had made. He was living in obedience to the one who had purchased him from the pit of hell. Do we not see that Christ has pulled us up out of the pit of hell as well? Saints, do you not see Christ as the greatest gift ever? That he is the reward that is more than enough. If you are saved, then those James 2 verses won't be a problem for you. Where James says, What use is it, my brother, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing in need of a daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, be filled, and yet do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? And Paul understood this fact as well, which is why we're told in Ephesians 4.28, he who steals, and by the way, this is the key verse, the one verse in the Bible why we are told that we are to work. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he can buy a big house, so that he can have a new car, so that he can have a great retirement program. So that he will have something to share with the one who has need. This is the same thing that James went on to tell us. He says, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, well, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by works. And then we're given another warning about living carnally. Not a warning to straighten up and act right. Rather, a warning about being content and living an undisciplined salvation. James says, you believe that God is one, you do well. But the demons also believe, and they shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Not useless in not having value, but useless in not having actually received that greatest gift for working. 
And then he goes on and explains how this is. When he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar, being obedient? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. As the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers? And again, what he is saying here is justified not in saying that they are made saved because of their works. That justification that he is saying there, he is saying that proved, their works proved that which they claimed. When she received the messengers and sent them out another way, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Saints, please hear me on this. We have all been taught improperly. We, we have been taught and been demonstrated improperly on how we are to live because of the greatest gift that has already been given to us. It was God that was the reason that Joseph lived the life that he did, both in the circumstances in which he found himself and in the matter in which he actually disciplined himself. And he did this. He acted in this manner all because of the love of God, that love that had been made manifest in his heart. He understood that he had already been given the greatest of gifts, and he wasn't seeking any reward here, anything more than what he had already been given. He had Christ, and the thing that he desired more was him, to know him, not to get gifts. He desired more of the greatest gift that had been given to him. And saints, if you have been given that greatest of gifts, if you are a saint, he, he, dear saints, he is the reason that we are to discipline ourselves. This is the reason why we are to obey. He is the reason, the why and even the how of how we live in subjection to his word. Because we, like Joseph, we get to live quorum Deo. We think that that's something to aspire to. I want to live in the presence of God. Saints, if we have been given his salvation, we live quorum Deo. God was with him. Saints, God is with you. Let's pray.